Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing and spirituality and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. Our special guest today is Beatrice Chestnut. And I came across Beatrice's work a couple of months ago. Uh, as many of you know, I am an avid, long-time, deep-level Enneagram student and aficionado, and I actually use it also uh, as part of my um, work with my spiritual students as well. And um, I came across uh, one of her books um, called The Complete Enneagram, and the more I got into it, the more impressed I was with the book, because on one hand, it has tremendous depth and uh, maturity and thoughtfulness. But on the other hand, it's very accessible. I'd feel comfortable giving this book to someone maybe who, maybe as their second Enneagram book, maybe as someone who had just read a very cursory book or article about the Enneagram and had some just basic uh, thumbnail sketch knowledge of the, of the Enneagram and the types, I'd feel comfortable. Uh, giving this book as well. So there's, uh, it's deep, but it's also accessible. And I thought that was truly amazing. And uh, just really looking forward to getting to know Beatrice a little bit better and sharing her and her work with you. So Beatrice, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you very much, David. It's nice to be talking with you today. Okay, so um, as most of my listeners know, one of the things that makes our podcast unique is that we do in-depth interviews where we take our time and it's not a soundbite type of situation. And so, uh, Beatrice, I want to give you some time to talk about your journey to where you are. I mean, it's amazing the work that you're doing and what you've done and obviously what's still ahead of you. And, uh, you know, we don't get here by accident. And, you know, our journey is, you know, a combination of, uh, of many levels of reality and many forces at play. And uh, I just want to give you a chance to share with our listeners and explore for yourself even um, your journey about uh, who you are and kind of how you got to here and kind of what's, what, what, what is driving, what's driving this ship <laughs> so, let me, so let me turn it over to you for a while, and I may interrupt if I have a burning question, but mostly I'm just going to let you go for a while and just kind of bring us up to present time, and then we'll get into more detail about your work. Okay. Um, so please do feel free to interrupt me and, and uh, steer me if, if uh, you know, in, the direction, in any direction you want me to go, because um, this is a broad question, but it's also nice to be asked about one's journey. Um, 
So I grew up in uh, California in Palo Alto on the San Francisco Peninsula. And I would say had by many measures a really good childhood um, and, uh, you know, had a lot of friends, you know, life was pretty good. Uh, went to school at UCLA and after college was actually really confused, did not know what I wanted to be in life at all, um, which is connected to my Enneagram personality type, of course. Um, but I ended up, at, as, at, as I did at various points in my, in my life, when I didn't know what to do, I would go back to school. <laughs> so I've gone back to school a few times. And uh, I went to San Francisco State to get a, I got my master's in broadcast communication arts because I was interested in the media. Um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I worked in radio and television for a while and got that master's, but wasn't really sure what to do with that. So I went back to school. Uh, this time I went to Northwestern University and got a PhD in communication. Uh, I studied mass media and politics there. Uh, which I really enjoyed, um, and I did my dissertation on press coverage of Iran-Contra and why Reagan and Bush never got in trouble for that when they could have, <laughs> and why how the press and Congress kind of failed to hold them account to account. That was the big message of that, sort of how our press wasn't really working as it should in a democratic society. Um, and I came home from Chicago before I finished my dissertation um, and was living in Palo Alto again and needing to finish my dissertation and uh, needing to support myself. So I went to school, I'm sorry, I went to work at a restaurant. So I was a waitress for quite a while. And that was a real big turning point in my life because I had to finish this dissertation because I did want to get my degree. But I, again, didn't really know what I wanted to do um, I was sort of headed toward a career in academics, probably working at a university teaching communication, but a lot of the communication programs were in the Midwest. And even though I love the Midwest, I really wanted to live in California. Um, but as fate would have it at that point, I, um, I got into a small women's group with some uh, fellow waitresses because we had started talking about kind of psychological, spiritual, personal growth topics and thought, well, why don't we form this women's group? So one of the waitresses I was working with knew a therapist who ran such groups, and so we formed this little group. Uh, now, to backtrack a little bit in the story, in 1990, um, right before I went, I moved to Chicago to go, to go to Northwestern, I learned about the Enneagram for the first time, and I learned it directly through David Daniels, who some people may know is one of the people who, along with Helen Palmer, in partnership with Helen Palmer, started one of the first Enneagram schools um, based in Menlo Park, right next to Palo Alto, where I grew up. And David Daniels was a, one of my best friend's father. So one of my best friends was also named David Daniels. Um, and I had known him from junior high and high school, and we were very close uh, and he died in, in 1990 and, and, and in a tragic circumstances. So that was a huge uh, blow to all of us. But I ended up spending a lot of time with David's family. Um, they were comforted by his friends being around them. They let us help plan the memorial service. Uh, and, but during that time, I spent some time with Dr. Daniels, David's father, and who was a psychiatrist at Stanford, 
and had a private practice in Palo Alto. And he was just getting really interested in the Enneagram, which was which speaks really uh, well of him because many psychiatrists um, might not have been interested in something like the Enneagram, but he, he was very interested because he, he saw uh, the great power of it to clarify people for people, what their sort of psychological issues and patterns were. Um, so one night at dinner, he told me, he thought I was probably a type two uh, and gave me Helen Palmer's first book. And I went home with that and started reading it and just immediately loved it. Um, it totally blew my mind that there was this typology or this personality profile that could describe me so accurately and deeply to myself in a way, you know, in ways that, you know, where it was highlighting what I already knew to be true about myself, but also um, revealing things that I maybe wouldn't want to admit or, or sort of partly unconscious. And so I was really, really um, interested in it very deeply from the start and would go back to Dr. Daniels with questions. And he was sort of surprised at how quickly I got into it. Um, and then subsequently moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, my father was from Chicago. And so I had cousins there. And one of my cousins was really, really into the Enneagram and even more than the Enneagram, the esoteric spiritual tradition behind it. So he was reading Gurdjieff and all kinds of things, Osho. And so he gave me the book In Search of the Miraculous, which is Auspensky's uh, account of Gurdjieff's work. And of course, Gurdjieff is one of the sources of what we know about the Enneagram symbol uh, and the uh, work on self. Uh, arrayed around it in, in the way, his way of teaching it. Um, and so I got really interested in that. And in a way, it sort of, I had been raised Catholic and I had sort of fallen away from Catholicism because in the Catholicism and the way I was, I was raised in it, I didn't really find a sense of spirituality or anything deep in that. It felt like more like dogma and rules and the priests I was exposed to most of the time didn't seem like they had very much to offer in, in terms of a spiritual path. Um, but learning about the esoteric spiritual tradition behind the Enneagram, sort, it's almost like it made me believe in, in, in spirituality again, because, you know, it, it, it showed how the basis of all the world's religions were really saying the same thing, which was the perennial philosophy, uh, which was connected to the Enneagram. So that was a hu another huge uh, revolution in my understanding of myself and the world and was a, a really another exciting dimension for me of the Enneagram study. So when I was back in California after graduate school and I got in this women's group, I started you know, working with the Enneagram a bit more. And one day in this women's group, uh, the therapist turned to me and said, you know, so, so, so B, what do you need from the group today? And I thought about her question and it's as if I looked inside myself to see what I needed from the group and there was nothing there. Um, and I ended up getting into therapy with the therapist who led that group um, because what both knowing I was a two in Enneagram terms and being in that group and realizing I had no idea what I needed or often what I was feeling um, was really sort of surprising to me. And so I did a course of therapy 
uh, with that therapist and for the first time really got a much deeper look into what was going on inside me at a deeper level. Um, and it was very timely because <laughs> I was trying to write my dissertation, but I had kind of gotten into a depression. And so I was sort of feeling stuck in my life overall. So there was a, a, it was a good time to be in therapy. And in the process of doing a three-year course of therapy with her, I not only uh, finished my dissertation, but also uh, got really interested in the process of therapy itself and decided to go back to school after I finished my dissertation to become a therapist. Um, so I went back to school in 1996 to 1999 uh, to the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is located here in San Francisco, and was the only school I was really interested in because at that point, you know, of course, through the, through the doorway of the Enneagram, I was very interested in psychology, but only if it was connected to spirituality. Um, and I think a lot of psychology and the way it's taught in academics tends to be more scientific and less spiritual and I wasn't interested in the scientific form of psychology. So that was a perfect school for me. Uh, and what was really great was going through lear learning to be a clinical psych you know, psychotherapist and learning clinical psychology, it was the best part was I already knew the Enneagram. And the beauty of that was it was as, every, it was as if everything I learned in graduate school um, fit into the Enneagram as sort of a grand theory of, you know, whatever of psycho psychology or spirituality or both at the same time or neither. Um, so it was really, it was, it was great knowing the Enneagram already because I felt like I had sort of almost the big picture and I was just fitting in the knowledge that I needed to understand different aspects of different things. So that was great. I became a therapist um, right after I finished my therapeutic training and started my internship. Um, so as part of my practicum uh, in, my, you know, in my training, I had been involved in a tea group, which was part of the, the training center I was at. And the tea group is, it stands for Human Sensitivity Training Group. And it's a particular form of group process. And I got very interested in um, and so right after I graduated, I found out there was a program at Stanford Business School where they were um, teaching people to be group facilitators according to this T-group process. Um, so I went and did that. And that was sort of the beginning of me kind of adding in the sort of teaching emotional intelligence to business people piece of what has become my career today. Um, and so I, you know, at Stanford Business School, I really loved the fact that this class that the group facilitation training program was connected to, it was called interpersonal communication, basically for MBA students. Um, but the lab of the class, which was what I was a group facilitator in and kind of like a TA uh, sort of facilitating this group that was connected to this class um, was an amazing thing. So the class was called interpersonal dynamics, but everyone really called it touchy-feely. Um, and this class is sort of legendary at Stanford. Um, you know, CEOs of big companies go back and give talks at Stanford Business School. And one of the things they often say is that touchy-feely was the best thing they ever did. It was the best class they took in, in business school and they, they use it every day of their life. And so that was really 
a fascinating experience for me and learning both to be a group facilitator, but, but part of facilitating this kind of group, this tea group was that I was also a participant. So it was the great um, learning for me to sort of take my own personal work on myself deeper. It's a lot about disclosing and getting feedback and in experiential learning through sort of getting feedback from others in real time. And so that was, that was great, both in that it sort of launched me in a new direction because I was very interested in teaching, how do you teach emotional intelligence to business people in a way that's interesting and engaging uh, and, and doesn't turn them off or doesn't seem irre irrelevant. Um, and so subsequent to that, I started doing some work with Ginger Lapid Bogda, who is someone I met through the Enneagram community, who was also involved in tea groups. Um, and she was really a great mentor to me in terms of, I started doing work with her bringing the Enneagram into business settings and teaching leaders and teams how to work with it. Um, and so that sort of started a gradual, so, so gradually I've been uh, moving away from doing depth psychotherapy, which I very much enjoy, but that is harder to do if you travel and are doing other things. Um, so I've done a gradual movement um, from the earlier, well, I, you know, I, I was a psychotherapist, you know, most of the time that was my main job between, I'd say 2000 and 2015. In the last couple of years, I've uh, sort of moved a bit away, although I still do some psychotherapy, but I can't offer every week psychotherapy because I travel now a uh, couple months, a few months a year to do Enneagram trainings and workshops. And, you know, I travel for some of my business consulting. So now I do uh, more of what I call Enneagram based coaching or counseling. Uh, and I also work with leaders and teams as a kind of a business consultant in helping them use the Enneagram, leverage the Enneagram as a tool to deal with all kinds of um, business challenges um, to help their teams get along better and understand each other more. Um, and of course, um, I wrote the book, um, the, the Complete Enneagram in 2013. Um, and then just came out with this, my second book, The Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace, this past January. So part of um, the years, five or six years before 2013, was dedicated to writing that book, which felt important to me for a couple of reasons. One was it seemed like there hadn't been a contemporary book about the Enneagram written by a psychothera practicing psychotherapist. So I felt like I had something to say and I wanted to ground uh, the Enneagram teaching both in the point of view of what's the psychology of the type in a way people could understand. But I also wanted to reorient the Enneagram teaching back in the direction of Claudio Naranjo, who I saw as uh, really the seminal author of the nine types and the 27 subtypes. Um, and I had learned sort of the modern, the way Claudia Neron, who was teaching the subtypes, I would say, in the modern era in 2004. Um, and that was another huge revolution in my self-understanding. And, and it, I had was familiar with the subtypes before that, but they had seemed sort of empty and not very substantive uh, before 2004. And when, I, when he came to the International Enneagram Association conference that I was actually the conference chair of in 2004, um, he brought 15 people that were his colleagues and they taught the whole of us 
the whole conference um, about the, his you know, version of the 27 subtypes. And it was completely different and new and had all this additional information in it. And I learned my subtype for the first time there. And I got a huge amount of new information about sort of what was going on for me at this uh, a deeper unconscious level. Um, and so really, really loved that. But after that conference, everyone went back to teaching the subtypes the way they had taught them before. Um, and so that was disappointing to me because I had had this big um, shift in my self-understanding through Naranjo's uh, more modern subtypes descriptions, but everyone was ignoring it like it never happened. And so that kind of set me on a mission to write this book in addition to saying something from sort of a psychological point of view that was um, more available to more people. I really wanted to, to put something in writing that people could gain access to about Naranjo's uh, modern subtype teaching, which to me was, you know, I teach that a lot now around the world because uh, when people hear about it, they really get, what, how much it adds to the nine types. And a lot of times people say to me after learning it, they say, you can't really do the Enneagram without this version of the 27 subtypes. So, um, so I've been focusing a lot on that, not because I ever intended to, but because um, it seemed like no one was, no one, especially in the US was picking up on this sort of added dimension that Naranjo was bringing that I thought was incredibly important. So, so that, that was how the sort of the story of how the complete Enneagram came to be. Um, and then... Uh, Could I the interrupt for a sec? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Why do you think the, um, such a powerful teaching that Naranjo had at that time, um, and obviously you weren't the only one that was impacted by it, uh, I guess I could ask this question in two different ways. One is, why do you think other people didn't um, continue to study it and integrate it and run with it? Or put differently, what was it about you and the space you were in and what you were being and what you were up to that did allow you to take uh, such a profound teaching and run with it? Um, those are great questions. Um, so I think one reason, uh, so I think, I think the re in, in short form, the reasons are politics, ego, um, and people were already teaching something on the subtypes that they had been teaching for years. So I think sometimes when you're kind of already on your track, uh, people don't want to say, hey, I, I didn't tell you the full story, or I didn't have it right, or, you know, I, so I think people were sort of, they were in, in the flow of what they had already been teaching and didn't want to shift it or didn't really see it in the same way I had. Um, I think at that time, I wasn't really what you might call an Enneagram teacher. You know, I was a therapist. Um, I was, I didn't, I hadn't been teaching the Enneagram for a long time. So I think I was new enough to the scene that, um, this, I, I, I didn't have to kind of disavow anything I had been doing before or switch course at all. It was brand new to me. And I, I was, you know, actually shy about putting myself out there with this. I, I was sort of reluctantly teaching it, but I felt such a strong 
impetus because it had helped me so much. And maybe, maybe, you know, other people didn't find their subtype or their type in it the way I had. Um, I also think this is a big piece. So Naranjo is, um, in, you know, in my mind, he's the, 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 the seminal author of the Enneagram as we use it today. I mean, he got it from Oscar Achazo, but what Oscar Achazo was teaching it doesn't really resemble the nine types as they're mostly used today. So Naranjo took what he got from Achazo and sort of translated it into the coherent types that then others picked up on and, and wrote about from there. Um, but the thing about Claudio Naranjo is he's not someone who, you know, he comes out of psychoanalysis as well as other streams of thought, but he's not someone, his whole thing is pushing up against people's egos. His whole thing is not about making people feel good. Um, so at that conference, you know, he, and, and, you know, he had, he was tasked with three mornings training 350 people in the, in the subtype thing. He and, his, he and his colleagues would come to people and say, well, we think you have your type wrong, you know, and, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, I mean, in, in, in a way, that's what we hired him. That's what we brought him there to do, you know, is to bring his expertise. And so people, of course, didn't like hearing that someone say you have your type wrong. And there's an idea that everyone should come to their type themselves, which I think is a good idea. Um, but people were, got really defensive. And so, um, <laughs> and so they, uh, and I also think people had loyalties to their teachers, right? Who weren't Naranjo. And so here you have t him coming into conflict with revered teachers. I understand. Uh, you know what I mean? He had, you had people and telling people in their type wrong. And so people were a bit up in arms of like, how can he do this? You know? So there was pushback. Um, there was people not liking him. And, and, and all of that. And so I think there were a lot of things going against being, people being open. Um, it sounds like you had, you had a love for truth that, uh, that gave you an altitude there that you didn't get caught up in that combined with the fact that you, were, uh, you didn't have a gig that you had to shake up. Right, exactly, exactly. And yeah. I think it's important to, to, you know, that I'm trained as an academic, right? So, and none of, hardly any of the Enneagram teachers or big authors are, right? So I go at it as, what is the truth, right? And where do you look for the truth? You look for the truth in the most authoritative, uh, established people who are coming from an authoritative basis. And, you know, in Naranjo, you have someone who is you know, an MD trained in psychiatry, he knows a lot about all kinds of things, gestalt, psychoanalysis, Buddhism, um, the fourth way, which is the Gurdjieff work. Um, and he's writing books that are laying this all out there in a clear way. So he seemed to me from an academic standpoint, the authoritative source. So when the authoritative source comes, like I was seeing him say, in my academic mind, he was the big he was the biggest uh, expert in the room, whereas other people, I think, saw other people as equal experts or even higher level experts than Naranjo. And a lot of people, you know, he pushes people the wrong way. And so that gives them more impetus to kind of say, oh, well, you don't, you don't, you're not the biggest expert in the room. So, so in an academic way, I was looking to him and he delivered um, on something that I think 
made a lot of sense to me and at, made, and made a lot of sense to what I was observing um, and made, provided a lot of a sense-making framework around the subtypes that I never had seen before. And even though I had lo some loyalty to my teachers, as an academic, I wasn't really seeing them as like my teacher or my guru. I was more seeing them as another source of information instead of the source. I understand. Now, one of the things that I love about the Enneagram is when it's put in the service to transformation and it's put in a spiritual context, but also with a appreciation for uh, psychological sophistication. And as far as I can tell, the, the spiritual teacher who has integrated that the best that I know of is um, Hamid Ali, A.H. Uh -huh. uh, Almas. And, uh, you know, there, he, has a, he has a whole uh, school and whole approach, the diamond approach, and, and uh, he's written an Enneagram book at a, for advanced students called Facets of Unity. And one of his uh, main teachers, Sandra Maitri, has written two books. And um, I find their work to be very important because of the uh, contextualization of the Enneagram in a spiritual framework, but, but at the same time, uh, very also psychologically sound and sophisticated. What, to what extent have you had direct contact with uh, Almas's work? Um, so I've read, uh, I've read parts of his books, um, and I totally agree with you. He is a very authoritative source, and as I might add, he was a student of Claudio Naranjo's in the early, early days. Um, and so, again, in my academic mind, that's part of what makes him a, a, a really credible source. He's been there from the beginning, but you're absolutely right. He is, I think, one of the most prolific authors um, in the Enneagram and even, you know, put, like you're saying, putting the Enneagram in spiritual context. Um, and so I, I've, I've heard him speak on numerous occasions. I'm not a part of the Diamond Heart work. I have great respect for the for, for that for the Ridwan school. I think absolutely his is probably the only school really of its kind. Uh, the Enneagram is not the center of that work. It's a piece of it. Sure. Um, but I think that his work is really amazing. Now, he has a similar issue though that Naranjo has, which is his writing is not very accessible. Um, and if you've ever tried to read Pearl Beyond Price, uh, you know, it's quite a tome. And again, I think that the, the thinking, the spirituality, and the psychology behind it is all really sound. I mean, it's, it's really, really high quality. Um, and, but it's really hard for a lot of people to access um, because, and again, he, he, he and Naranjo are both fives. And it's not high on the list of a five to make sure you understand them, you know? So uh, I think there's a way that, um, now I will say in my book, in the complete Enneagram, um, I, I, I was very careful about who I cited in there and what I drew from. Mostly it's Naranjo, but secondarily, I drew a, quite a bit from Sandra Matry. Um, I really like her books. Um, and again, I, I think that, um, Hamid Ali and Sandra Maitri are, are definitely 
uh, two of the absolute best teachers out there, especially with, uh, with integrating spiritual practice uh, with the Enneagram. Um, although, again, the Enneagram's not necessarily the center of their school, but, uh, but, I, but her books are really good and I think more accessible than, than his. Uh, and so kind of definitely taking a step toward uh, being uh, something that anyone can understand if they have the interest. Yes, but very powerful. Yeah, yeah. Her, yeah. her work is amazing. And I, I definitely, I, and I, I, I do cite both of them, but her to a greater degree in, in my book. Now, in my Enneagram journey, the Enneagram didn't really open up for me in a really powerful way until I came across the whole work about tri-type, mm-hmm. um, which you know, was, was Catherine uh, Chernick-Favre's work uh, which followed a similar structure to the uh, to Ichazo's trifix work, right? And um, I was wondering if you've been influenced a lot by the tri-type work. Um, I, I have not. Okay. Have not. Um, but do, do you know about it? I know about it. I I, I so I took some Eureka trainings. Right. Um, in the Oscar Achazo school, and I learned trifix in an Eureka training. I see. But you haven't studied Catherine's work? Uh, no, not very much. Okay. I've, re- I've read some, uh, some of what she's written, okay. but I haven't studied it in depth. Okay. So what happened for me was, was uh, after a while it became obvious to me that I was a four. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I could see that, you know, in terms of my wings, I could see that I was probably about maybe two-thirds a five-wing and maybe one-third a three-wing, but it didn't resonate for me as a really profound resonating point for who I totally am. And then when I started studying the tri-type work, which is the idea that you do have your main Enneagram type, but in the head center and in the heart center and in the belly center, you, you do have a type and there's a particular order in which you kind of uh, access them. And uh, after doing a lot of study with, uh, with that system and having some pretty in-depth conversations with uh, Catherine and her partner at the time, David, uh, it became really obvious to me that in that system, I was a four seven one. And when I really understood the fourness and the sevenness and the oneness and how that all fit together, it, it created a gestalt that opened the Enneagram up for me in in really, really powerful ways. And of course, this is based on going back to what you were mentioning earlier about the fourth way school and Gurdjieff and the whole idea that we have three major centers of intelligence, the head, the heart, and the belly. And, and the tri-type work uh, takes that into account. And um, it's helped me so much. And so that's the reason I brought it up to find out if you'd ever been attracted to exploring that or studying that or if you had any thoughts on that um well i i really liked achazo's uh uh presentation of trifix it made a lot of sense to me he has a very fascinating formula 
uh, for figuring out which type you're fixated in, in each center. And I found that really amazing. It, it's based on childhood experience of, of mother, father, and siblings or the world. Um, so I liked the trifix. I, that made a lot of sense to me. Here's the thing. I think subtype is, and this is just my opinion, is a much more powerful ex explainer of things uh, and much more primary. And I find sometimes with some people, um, what happens is, and, and again, so part of what happened in my head when you were telling what you were just saying is, you know, I'm wondering, you know, could you be a self-preservation four? And so what was happening is you weren't resonating with the description of four because most of the descriptions of fours have been written to at, totally without any knowledge of the existence of self-preservation four, right? So you have major teachers and authors who don't even know that there's such a thing as a self-preservation four. So self-preservation fours have a hard time finding themselves in the nine types. Uh, and even if they find themselves as a four, there's a lot that just doesn't fit. Um, so I think it's great that you related to tri-type and that it, that opened it up for you and it made sense. But part of what I'm wondering is if you're a self-pres four, self-pres fours are seven-ish and one-ish. Um, so I you know, it, found, it, it's yeah. possible. Yeah. However, um, you know, I wouldn't go to the bank on this, but I would say in terms of, uh, I think I have a lot of sexual for in the sense that, oh, yeah. uh, in the sense that deep connection, grokking intimacy, uh, is really a high priority for me. And if it's not present for me in my life, it, it really occurs to me as a problem. Right. Um, um, I would say the jury's maybe still out on that, but I'm not discounting the importance of, uh, of, of the instincts. Right. Right. So, so part of what's tricky for me is there's been so little understanding of the instincts and the subtypes, even more important, the subtypes, because people think they know what it means to be a self-preservation or social or sexual. But once you combine it with the type, it looks completely different. So I have people saying, well, you know, I can't be a social type because I don't like to join groups. Well, that's not really what determines whether you're a social. It's like, so that's one. What, what would be some questions like assuming that you knew I was a four and your experience of me over the last uh, 45 minutes, if you, if that's all you knew about me and you were wanting to discover and help me discover what my primary subtype would be, what kind of questions would you ask me? So, Good question. So I go in not through the portal first of instinct, but through subtype. So in other words, I would ask you, um, how angry are you? Generally. I wouldn't know how to answer that because I wouldn't know what your frame of reference was. Well, I, I mean, the question is just, do you get, um, like when you get hurt, do you, do you get angry? Is, is anger kind of a mode of defense for you? Is it something that you feel on a regular basis? Because, um, because the sexual four is an angry four. It's, it's someone who defends a lot through anger. And what you said about deep connection and intensity is true of all three fours. 
Yeah, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that that anger is huge for me. I would say that I deal a lot more with um, sort of a loneliness, more of an existential angst than I do with resentment or or anger. I would say frustration is a little more present, I would say, because there's sadness mixed with it. But mm -hmm. I'm not a, I wouldn't say, you know, like, if you asked people who knew me well, and you said, am I an angry type, you know, uh, okay. I'm, I, 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 I have a pretty big capacity for, for flowing with things. Uh, if somebody does cross certain lines, mm -hmm. uh, I will be very firm. But it's not, it wouldn't be people's main description of me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you said exist sort of a, more of loneliness, that sounds like that's more, that would be more pr pr prominent in your experience? Kind of more? Yeah, you know, yeah, I would say a lot of my life I've kind of felt like um, a stranger in a strange land. Right. You know, I felt like, uh, like the earth is not my home, like I'm, right. like, I, like I'm here on a mission. Right, right, right. So when you feel your feelings, how comfortable are you sharing your feelings with others? Are you, like, do you sort of share any kind of difficult or feelings or suffering readily with others? Or do you more feel like you need to kind of hold it in and keep it to yourself because other people won't get it or, or it's not okay with people? I'm very discerning about who I share with. Yeah. yeah. If, if I meet somebody who I get can get me at that level, I really right. do enjoy that kind of deep sharing. Right. But in general, you know, I'm not a hard on my sleeve kind of person. Right. Um, not because I'm repressing things, but just because uh, my experience is that in the past that when I've, attempted to share at a certain level of depth with people that I don't get can get it at that level. They usually can't get it at that level and it's not very useful and it doesn't feel very good and it's not very satisfying. Right. Right, right, right. So, you know, I can't say for sure, but from, from what I'm hearing so far, it sounds like in, in the Naranjo approach to the subtypes, you are, you would more likely to be a, a self-preservation subtype than a one-to-one -one because the self-preservation subtype is someone for is someone who kind of gets the message early on in life uh, that sort of the outside world doesn't really want to hear your difficult feelings or your pain or can't handle it like kind of gives you the message we only want to hear happy feelings so self-preservation fours often feel like they kind of have to hold it in or it or not share it and or, or they, this is that's some, there's someone who sort of cries alone more you know i would say that i'm a variation of that theme i would say it's not so much that the message i got when i was young was to share only happy feelings right it was more the message like okay when i'm really being who i am uh it either either People can't match it or they don't get it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it could be social fork. So I'll just describe the three fours from this point of view, and you can tell me what fits for you maybe. That's another way at this. So the self-preservation – so the way Naranjo expresses it is 
that the fours all have something around, the three fours all have something around suffering uh, because envy and the comparing mind is at work and uh, creates a sense of suffering. Like other, like I'm lacking, other people have something I, I don't have. Um, and so the suffering gets played out in three different ways. The self-preservation four is long suffering. The social four suffers and the one-to-one four makes other people suffer. I would say from those three, I would be more self-pressed that I would, that I would, uh, that I would bear my suffering primarily internally, unless I was with somebody who I would consider to be uh, willing and able to to truly understand and um, be able to usefully interact with me. Right. But that my idea about that, and I don't think I'm being like, I don't think I'm making up stuff here. My idea about that is that at this point in time and space on planet Earth, that is fairly, that person would be fairly rare. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. So self-preservation fours have kind of a feeling of it's not really safe to really open up. You need to you know, maybe keep those feelings to yourself because it's hard to, you know, to sort of share yourself and then get a negative response from the outside world. And so... And it's not just, it's not just lack of safety. It's just that, is, I mean, there's some of that, but it's also that it just doesn't work. Doesn't work, right. right it doesn't, right. yeah. It doesn't, yeah, move, yeah. it doesn't move things forward. Right, yeah. People can't meet you there. Or right, it's not, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Right. So, you know, the self-preservation four is sometimes it looks like a a sunny four, someone who's sort of more happy, leads with more happy feelings. Sometimes not, but it's not a person who wears their heart on their sleeve, where that would be more the social four who is more, uh, you know, if you ask them how they're doing, they'll tell you a lot about how they're not doing and what they feel sad about and maybe what's not going well, that's someone who has more of a passion for inferiority. It's almost like comparing themselves to others and winding up on the bottom of the ladder. Yeah, um, I, wouldn't ju- I, wouldn't just, uh, I wouldn't just be doing that in casual conversation. Right, 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 right. Where social fours might do that more. I right. mean, certainly they would also have a sensitivity to maybe not everyone can hear me, um, but they sort of are more forthcoming with uh, more of their pain and sadness and melancholy, whereas self-preservation fours just ha- kind of learn to kind of keep it more to themselves. I often hear self-preservation fours say they, they, they write it in a journal or they uh, listen to music as a way of almost feeling their feelings, but a little bit more internal uh, than, than, yeah. than sharing them. Right. But it's like, but it's like, I'm okay talking to you. Right. You know, and even though I know a lot of people are going to hear this, because I'm talking to you and I get that you can get me at this right. level, I'm totally okay talking to you, but I wouldn't talk to most people like I'm talking to you. Right. Right. If okay. that tells you anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it sounds a little bit more like, um, again, in this approach, uh, you would be more of the self-preservation uh, for, 
the one-to-one four, the sexual four is uh, more, uh, they externalize their pain. So it's a person who, who feels auto, you know, automatically, unconsciously, I don't want to feel deficient. I don't want to feel sad or hurt. So they automatically go to, it's the outside world isn't meeting me. And that's the problem. And so they, they have no problem with experience. And, and this is what I love about one-to-one four, sexual fours, is they don't see anger as a bad thing. Other types do. Um, but they, they tend to lead, the main defense mechanism is I'm hurt and so I'm angry. Um, I'm, I'm, it's, you didn't meet my need. You know, they can be vocal about their needs. They can share what they don't like. They tend to want to be the best. So they will compare themselves to others and wind up on the top of that comparison. So they want to, so they're, they're a bit more competitive. Um, and they want to show that they're superior to others. So if there's someone in the room that's an expert in the same field they are, they might um, start showing how they're better than that person or, you know, so there's more of a competitive edge. There's more of a angry presentation. Um, and when you get a sexual four talking about this, uh, you know, we had a, I did a panels last weekend and we had a four panel and there, there's a sexual four, four, you know, guy who I think is just so articulate about um, when he's hurt, he'll kind of throw a ball of anger out there. Um, and I think that's, that's more according to this approach, what the one to the sexual four looks like. Now, a lot of people um, who haven't heard this approach I will think of themselves as sexual fours um, because of they've learned in other sources that part of what makes you that is sort of they focus on more the instinct on, well, I make intense eye contact, or I really appreciate deeply connecting with someone. Um, and in this approach, you know, I often find, you know, that's not the determining factor because all the fours really, uh, from, from this point of view, are, are, can be like that. Uh, it's more the behavior, the defensive patterns, uh, the way envy gets played out, in three different ways, the way suffering is expressed or not expressed in three different ways, that, that's more uh, the essence of the distinction between the subtypes. This is fascinating. So if I wanted to continue to pursue this, um, to clarify it for myself and to get more value from this aspect, uh, do you have some suggested resources for me? Uh, or where would you suggest I go from here to deepen my appreciation of this dynamic? So I do have, I mean, there is in, in both books um, sections on the three different types of fours. Um, I, there's a, 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 another podcast I did once and some recordings that I have um, that, are, that are describing the three different uh, fours in, in, in detail. Um, I think those are the top of mind things that I would point you to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'd love a link to that podcast. Uh, sure. what, um, what was it about the seven and the one that keyed you into the self-press? So, so, so here's, and again, this is just my opinion, but my, for, once I learned the subtypes and saw the explanatory power of them, as well as how they're connected to our most unconscious processes, what I realized is, 
you know, the, we, we who love the Enneagram, you know, had been, we, you know, before I saw this approach, we, we look for ways to further define ourselves. We look for ways to say, okay, I'm a four and my friend is a four, but we're kind of different. You know, what explains the differences between people of the same type? What, ex what, what hones me in on the, the, the really ex specific things that I experience and how can the Enneagram describe that in detail? And what I think is that people have turned to wings and tri-type as a way to explain these more specific aspects. Um, and so I often say wings have been made to do too much of the work, to carry too heavy a load in explaining the, the deeper specifics and differences among people of the same type. I think that wings are a thing, but I don't think they are subtypes. So in other words, I don't think they're a, such a thing as, and, and as like a three with a two wing is a completely di different animal in a very recognizable way than a three with a four wing. I think that, that wings influence us, they color, they, they give flavoring and coloring to the way our main type shows up. But even more important than that, I think wings are developmental opportunities. I think that's their main function. I think that every bird has two wings and every Enneagram type has two wings. And the question is usually which one is more conscious, which one are you more in touch with? And as developmental opportunities, it's kind of like, okay, I'm a two. Maybe I have an issue I'm struggling with. How might it help me to lean on my one wing uh, to sort of incorporate some of the high side one qualities that can help fill out my, my toolkit in terms of the strategies that I deal with the world. Um, so I, I believe wings are a thing, but I don't think they're what people have made them into because I think people haven't, they, they aren't as familiar with this approach to the subtypes and how it's an even better uh, description of why people of the same type differ and what people's more specific nuanced patterns are in these three different sub personalities. If that well, I would totally agree with that. That's the reason that I mentioned to you that the Enneagram didn't open up for me until I got away from the wing so much and started looking at tri-type. And, right, right, and, uh, right. And it was, when I, it was when I started really focusing on the aspects of myself that was seven-ish and the right. aspects of myself that was one-ish that I felt that resonance with what the Enneagram was really trying to point me to. And that's why I wanted to ask you when you, when I was starting to ask you about this, that when you started to kind of suggest that maybe I'm a self-pres subtype, you made some comment about how that thought that you had was more likely because I had mentioned about the seven and the one. Right, right. What it was about the seven and the one that made you increase the likelihood that I was probably self-pressed. Right. So one of the things that the subtype shows us is that, for instance, let's look at type, um, let's look at type nine. So the self-pressed subtype is more of an eight-ish nine. Right. The social subtype is more of a three-ish nine, and the sexual nine is more of a four-ish nine. So similarly, four 
uh, self-pres four is sometimes gets mistaken as a one or a seven. Because? Um, because first of all, there's no description of self-pres four in any of the books besides the one I wrote to, to rectify this, right? <laughs> so in other words, I, whenever, when I started doing workshops on, the sub, on this approach to the subtypes, I had a lot of people, probably similar to you, that, but even less, I mean, not similar to you in the fact that they hadn't even found themselves as a four or people who had found themselves before, but it didn't quite ring true, kind of like you were saying, it didn't really make sense until you found the tri-type. I've found people, almost every time I do a workshop, people find themselves as a self-pres four who never saw themselves that way before, because again, how could they? There's no description of a self-pres four in any of the books. And a lot of major teachers have told people who are self-pres fours, you can't be a four. You're not a four. I have at least three or four people I know who told me, major Enneagram teachers have come up to them and say, you're not a four, you're a seven. Right? So this is a four that sometimes gets mistyped as a seven, that sometimes gets mistyped as a one. Why? Because they can be kind of one-ish. They've got some one-ish stuff in them. And for reasons that have to do with their type and subtype, not necessarily one. And also they can look quite kind of seven-ish for reasons having to do with how the subtype operates. Um, and so that's, that was what went through my mind when, when you said that. But was it because, was it something about the seven and the one, or was it something just because I said to you that I'm a four, but it really didn't click for me until I, I, I explored something outside that box? It, it, was, it was both. It was uh, both that you said it didn't click for you until you found something else to kind of explain more of, you know, more, explain you in a different way from a different angle. And it was also the fact that the particular types that resonated with you were seven and one. And so what is it about that seven and one? So the seven is, so because self-pres fours tend not to lead with their darker feelings and kind of when they're interacting with many people sort of share more of their, upbeat feelings um, and they tend to have a kind of high energy about them. Uh-huh. Um, they can, again, I think get mistyped. I have a good, good friend who's a self-pres four, one of my best friends. People are constantly telling her she's not a four and she's a seven. Constantly, right? She's very smiley. She's very friendly. She's upbeat. She has high energy. Um, and so people... Um, see that and they think, well, that doesn't look like a four. That looks like a seven, you know? So I think that's an element of it is that self-pres four sometimes, and sometimes they relate to seven. Uh, they're both idealistic. Uh, and, and again, I think that one of the crucial differentiating factors between four and seven is that fours have ready access to a wide range of feelings at great depth. Now, self-preservation fours don't always express or communicate all that they're feeling inside and can sort of hold it in, you know, and, right. and you know, and can express, you know, when we're just going through the world, express more positive feelings. And what about the one-ish part of it? And the one-ish part of it is um, 
is a uh, there can be a little bit of uh, rigidity, of a self-judgment, um, of a uh, kind of adhering to, to and again, sort of like um, being hard on themselves, but not in a big sort of obvious way that people think you would have to be to be a four, uh, but in more of a held back kind of way. There can be a sort of a holding back, a repression of feelings and, and impulses. Um, but also they can be very active in the world. Self-pres fours right. can be very active because what happens is instead of feeling envy, um, they go get what they want that other people have. So it's almost like I'm not going to hang out in this. And again, this is very automatic and unconscious. But instead of getting caught up in the pain of envy, they think, oh, that person has this that I want. I'll just go make that happen. So self-pressed fours like, are very into proving themselves a lot. I have a self-pressed four who says, you know, if someone tells me I can't do something, I go and do it. Um, see, I, see, I don't have that. I don't, I'm yeah. not motivated by other people telling me I can't do something. It makes absolutely no difference to me. Mm-hmm. But I am very ambitious. I have, uh, and then... And then when I'm really into a project, once uh, you know, once the once the 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 depth of the vis- the depth of it clarifies for me, and the vision of it starts to clarify, right. the four is engaged, the seven is engaged. Then once it's once it's time to really manifest that, then the one really kicks in with the precision and the detail and the refinement. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's how that tends to show up for me. I see. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes and sense. I'm excited about this combination of the power of tri-type with this way of looking at the subtypes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think there may be correspondences between particular subtypes mm-hmm. and particular, you know. That's very exciting. Um, another thing that we talked a little bit about off the air before we started that um, – I'd like to get on on the record here is um, another area of the Enneagram that I think is ripe for the picking is the exploration of Enneagram types as it relates to people's energetic and bodily experiences and somatic experiences. And I think it has tremendous potential and power for working with people, for people who tend to be have a high level of ability and skill by entering into the being through the body and through the energetic levels. And uh, I wanted just to give you a chance so that we could get this uh, out there. What are your thoughts about some of the good work that is starting to happen in that area? Um, I definitely think like in the narrative school, you know, the Helen Palmer, David Daniels school that they really, they've all, they've recognized that for a long time that these things need to be embodied and that sort of a lot of the trigger points happen in, through the body. So I think Peter O'Hanrahan, Marion Gilbert, uh, uh, and, and focus a lot of attention on that. Um, Wendy Palmer, I know, is someone who has, you know, merged, you know, somatic, uh, somatics and Aikido with Enneagram. Um, so, I, yeah, I definitely think that's a really important piece of this because we are embodied. Now, I also think that um, the instinctual part of 
the subtypes is a piece that can be uh, worked with somatically as well. Uh, and, and, and I have a friend, good friend, Uranio Pius, Brazilian Enneagram teacher now based in London. Uh, he just started this website, Mundo Enneagrama. He works a lot energetically um, with uh, sort of healing and, and working with issues in the body very energetically using the power of the symbol as kind of almost a, kind of a, a mat that, that can be tapped into in terms of certain energies and momentum. And, uh, and I'm actually organizing some workshops here for him in California in June. And then in July, he and I are teaching together. Uh, we're starting to teach a course called Rising Above the Instinct, Instinctual Subtypes, where we're, we will have an energetic and somatic component to that in terms of noticing how these energies arise in the body and, and how you can work with them from that point of view. Yeah, very exciting. Um, getting, back to, um, getting back to you and your, your situation, um, one of the things I noticed um, reading your book is that obviously you're a very talented writer. Is that something that has just, just came naturally to you or is that something that you in this life have put a lot of focus into? Um, I have put a lot of focus into it. Um, I, I enjoy writing and I think I have a strong desire to communicate. <laughs> and I think it's part of being a two. It's like wanting to communicate in a way that creates connection. Um, and, you know, going to graduate school, I had to do a lot of writing. I wrote a long dissertation. And so I think I just, through doing it, got better at it and was motivated again by wanting to communicate clearly and make my points in ways that people could understand me. Um, and so just over the year, I had a business editing and writing. And so I think it's, it's sort, sort of the same way I learned to, to type. It's just by doing it. Uh, and after a while, uh, this felt like I, I, you know, I had, I had developed some skill because I had just done it so long. I understand. That brings up an interesting question for me about type and people discovering their type. What's your view about, like, I'm kind of torn between, like, when I'm working with my students and they are in the process of discovering their type, um, there's, a, there's a part of me that's very reticent to influence that exploration at all, and yet there's some times when I feel almost compelled to, to interject and ask a question or make a comment. What's your view on the best way to serve people in helping them discover their type? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, I guess my view would be, um, you know, I think it's one thing if someone comes to you and they're wor and you're working with them in a position uh, as a, you know, a spiritual director or counselor or guide because they're coming to you for that. So I, I look at it as helping guide someone in their process of finding their own type. I think as long as what I, I think the big mistake that people make is by being too sure of their opinion. <laughs> in other words, um, what I try not to do is, oh, I, I'm sure you're a seven. You know, you're absolutely, oh, you think you're a four? Well, no, you're a seven. Or you think you're a three? No, no, you're a six. You know, I, I, I think sometimes what I'll put it forth as a hypothesis, always tied to reflecting back what I'm hearing from them. 
Right. So I see it as a guiding process and based on their own experience and self-observation of themselves and tying it to certain patterns. Uh, but I never, I try to hold my hypotheses lightly and to not push people. I think sometimes when people aren't finding their type, they're not ready or they don't want to find their type. And I think you need to let them have that experience. So I, I usually, I will help and guide and offer my opinion if asked, uh, but I don't offer my opinion as equal to the truth with a capital T. I understand. Do you feel like there's an age in a person's life where before that age, it's not very useful to have that person attempt to really determine their type? Um, I think it's good to let people grow um, and be who they are without having to worry about um, maybe this kind of, you know, categorization or description. Um, that said, I think it's whenever people come to it or want it themselves. So I, I taught at an alternative high school for a while, and I taught a course in the Enneagram, and these are teenagers, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17. They loved it. Um, and so I, I'm usually, I usually put it out there, and if people ask about it and get interested, then I think they're ready. Um, if they don't ask about it and don't get, get interested in it, I never push it on anyone, you know? Okay. Um, sure. but, yeah, but I have an 11 year old nephew who i his type has been obvious since he was like three <laughs> years old and every, and he's gotten a little bit interested in it, you know, but, uh, and so I think if they're asking questions, they're ready. And if they don't care or don't want to know, then you leave them alone. <laughs> Another question I have, given that you're integrating your work more and more in the business world, is have you taken a look at and do you find there's much value in exploring the integration and patterns between Enneagram types and Myers-Briggs types? Um, I think there's some uh I think there's some value in that. And I think some people have done that. And I think that's a good resource to have because people in business tend, you know, a lot of them tend to know, especially in HR and OD tend to know MBTI language. And it's nice if you can create a bridge. Um, that said, I don't think the correspondences are there to a large degree. I mean, there's certain things that you can say, um, so while I, I think that work is interesting and it's good that it's being, that it's done and that it can be helpful to have, um, it's not something I'm super interested in myself only because, you know, the Enneagram, you know, in my view is, is a more powerful tool. Right. But I mean, I mean it more likely in the context of a bridge builder. Yeah. I think it's a good bridge builder to, to, to have that. Absolutely. Uh, what are you most excited about these days? Wow, what am I more um, Well, I'm very excited about um, the, the, my collaborations with people. Um, I've been, you know, as a therapist and uh, even a coach, I've worked by myself a lot of the time. So I'm working, starting to work more with other people, which I love. Um, very interested in my work with Uranio Pius. Um, just he, he brings such a great combination of uh, knowledge and experience and interest to the Enneagram study. He used to be an uh, organization development guy, coach, and he has switched now to, to more spiritual work. 
Um, and the work he does is amazing. And it's real, it's helped me. It's very transformative. And I'm excited to be collaborating with him to bring, so the first, you know, the subtype trainings I've done have been very informational because there hasn't been much information out there about the Naranjo approach. Um, but I'm very interested and excited to take that to the next level, which is, okay, how do you use this information for, for growth, especially like you're saying, from a level of embodiment and a level of really creating meaningful shifts in people's lives, which can be difficult. And so I'm very excited about the work I'm doing with him. And we're going to be doing our new course uh, together on the instincts and subtypes four times this year. Uh, in different places. And we're also collaborating to do a workshop for coaches, therapists, and counselors that we're doing for the first time here in June, and then also in the UK in, in December. And I'm really excited about that because I, I, I think it's the Enneagram is the best tool out there for coaches and therapists and counselors. And I'm, I love the process of helping them learn uh, different ways to integrate it into the work that they do. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, my time with you and uh, really admire and respect you very much. And I'm really excited to see where you take all this and uh, look forward to our relationship unfolding as well. Um, I'd like to give you the last word here in terms of giving you whatever time you'd like to share anything you'd like to share in closing for our listeners and also to make sure that uh, our listeners have ways of accessing you and accessing your work and then, uh, and then I'll close it out. Sure. Okay. I mean, I, it's so funny as you were talking, I was thinking, I don't, I don't mean to be too grandiose, but I really, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the Enneagram work is because not only it's helped me grow and change so much, but because I think it's really a force that can change the world. Uh, and that's, which is why I'm really interested in bringing it into leadership and business, because I think it has the possibility to really create a higher level of consciousness between, a, you know, a lot of people and people who are, you know, in positions of power and decision making in, in our in our world. Um, but um, uh, people can contact me through my website, which is BeatriceChestnut.com. Um, and I've got some Enneagram resources there. I'll be adding to them in the next coming months, uh, more resources, more blogs. I just launched it in the last couple months. Um, and they can also find out about my workshops uh, in, the, in California and around the world uh, there on my workshops page. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. Our special guest today has been Beatrice Chestnut, an Enneagram expert who is, uh, has a profound understanding of the Enneagram, of psychology, uh, very spiritually engaged and is committed to taking this out into the world in a big way. So Beatrice, thank you so much. And I hope we can do this again sometime. And as always, 
Let's close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.